Welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. At Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, we recognise that you're not just one kind of writer. Perhaps you're banging out a novel between copywriting gigs, or maybe you're a blogger with a sideline in poetry. Whatever type or types of writing you do, our goal at Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger is to give you the shot of inspiration you need to finish that novel, submit that thesis or launch that freelance career. I'm your host, Claire Lynch, and for this episode, I sat down with Dr. Karen Otowell, a fellow of Lucy Cavendish College, Cambridge. Karen's also Director of Academic Development and Training for International Students in the Language Centre at the University of Cambridge. And Karen has spent her career helping students write clearly and persuasively, work for which she won the prestigious Pilkington Prize in 2016. She's also currently pursuing a second doctorate on ways to help students develop their academic writing skills. And in this episode, she shared some fascinating ideas about the cultural factors that can influence our ability to write effectively. That's coming right up. So, Karen, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. Likewise. Can you start by telling me a little bit about what you do at the Language Centre, what your role involves, and what the purpose is of the programme that you head up? Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, Well, as you said then, um, the section that I'm involved in is academic development and training for international students. And basically, we support then students at the university whose first language is not English um, in acquiring the levels of in particular written articulacy, but also spoken fluency um, in English within their discipline. Um, That's the main area that we do in our main programme in the summer, Um, but in the workshops and bespoke um, workshops for departments and colleges throughout the year, we do then also run the same provision for first language speakers, because working at um, postgraduate level through the medium of English is not as straightforward as it may seem if it's your first language, because it's this particular context in which you're writing, and they have to glean that too. But the primary focus of the section then is providing support for um, second language speakers of English. And what would you say are the particular challenges that international students face when they're writing in English and in an Anglo context Mm. academically? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one thinking of the context of of Cambridge, because the, the answer might be different then for different institutions. We'll all have very similar difficulties, or the students may face similar difficulties, but it'll kind of be on a slider depending on their proficiency levels in the language to start with. Um, so at Cambridge, we do have one of the highest entrance requirements for English, um, so mapped to um, one of the international standard exams, IELTS, um, is a 7, 7.5, which is in the advanced um, proficient user area of this. So the students are well versed in the, in the language in terms of getting the grammar right and the lexis and things like this. But of course, that's not enough just to do a postgraduate study through English, because if that were the case, then all first language speakers would have no problems at all doing it. Um, So there are two things, really. Um, There's one thing, of course, that it's the context in which they're writing. Um, So, of course, writing at postgraduate level isn't just writing. Um, It is different to undergraduate level, where the students are being trained in their discipline and being trained in how their discipline communicates. Um, But at postgraduate level, the students are contributing knowledge to their field of research. So there's, of course, the content is, of course, the the main driver of this. Um, So that makes it a lot more challenging than just writing where you're just trying to understand something. You are contributing to your discipline. And that's something, of course, that first language speakers will have difficulty with as well. 
but we're particular then with um, students for whom English is a second language. One of the main difficulties I've seen in my work here over the past 11 years um, is students who may have come from a different argumentational paradigm um, in the sense that not all languages, of course, communicate in the same way, um, not just from a grammatical or lexical perspective, but the way in one constructs argument. English has evolved very much out of the Anglo-European cultural paradigm, so the Socratic method, the influence of the, the Greeks and Romans in how we construct argument, so inductively, deductively, all of this. Um, but this isn't universal. There may be some traits that go across languages, of course, um, but Western rhetoric, for example, is quite different to Eastern rhetoric. Um, and this isn't a language aspect uh, per se, but it is in how you approach the subject and how you approach the argument. And quite often I see that um, international students then in particular, who perhaps haven't been educated through English medium before, so haven't really come across this, um, it isn't then a language problem, although it may manifest itself in that way. If you're just reading it, you seem to see it as a, as a linguistic issue. Well, in actual fact, the, the concerns are far deeper um, and they're really their approach to the, to the question at hand and how they've constructed their response. Um, so it's just a little bit out of focus. And if you can get to that and get them to understand and see how we may do it differently in English, not to say that English is better, uh, far from it, it's just a paradigm, but if they've chosen to do a degree through English medium, then knowing how that paradigm works is of course important. So once they can understand how that works, and of course within their discipline, what you often then see is what you are left with on the surface are just minor um, slips or errors in the, in the grammar, and we can smooth those out. Um, so that's the, kind of the two things they're juggling with in particular. Okay. So the lang language side of things is less of a problem than other concerns. So can you maybe um, explain to me what what an essay, for example, written by someone who hasn't been trained in the Western tradition, so maybe someone from Chinese or Japanese culture or, or other cultures, what that essay might look like if they're not aware of how things are done in the Anglo tradition? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. Um, well, if we take kind of then China, that was a good one that you, you mentioned there, so the, the Chinese structure. Um, the whole idea of this kind of goes back, um, as, as a research field at least, um, to Robert Kaplan, um, who's an American professor, um, is based at the University of um, Southern California in Los Angeles. And he wrote a paper in 1966 entitled Cult Cultural Thought Patterns in Intercultural Education. And it's kind of a mild version of the Safia Whorf hypothesis, saying that the language that you speak influences how you think, which of course now is being debunked. But there's an element of it, at least, in the way in which um, different cultures, um, not just linguistic, but of course disciplinary cultures, construct argument. Um, and he did a, he, was, he and his colleagues at the American Institute at the University um, were surprised by the level of accuracy with which they could predict what the student's first language was on the basis of how they'd written in English. Um, and so he, this paper then was on the basis of looking at uh, 600 papers written by a new different kind of um, linguistic backgrounds of students at UCLA. Um, and he was looking at how they constructed thought or how it was represented in English um, in this. Um, and he came up with kind of what he then called his doodles. Um, they're very well known from this paper. Um, and two key ones then, picking up then the Chinese aspect, 
and say the English aspect, um, and how he depicted what he did, um, he did move analysis across a paragraph, which is kind of how the development of essentially the argument is mapped throughout a paragraph. And how he represented this for English was a linear downward facing arrow. Now there were lots of scholars then who took umbrage at this and some people just said that it should have been a, an arrow pointing in the other direction um, and all of these things but it's it's just the actual idea behind it's interesting um, the argument is very linear yes the linearity is a key thing and what you can also see not just this only in how we construct argument but the language itself is linear that i can come back to um, but english then was a, as a linear um, structure whereas the chinese one for example or well, he called this Oriental, but that covered numerous of the Southeast Asian languages, um, was a spiral. And this has often then led to it called being called spiral logic. Um, I would see the picture something more and less, uh, more of a 3D image of it kind of almost like a corkscrew right. going to a point, and less so just kind of going around a maze into a point. Um, and I raise this, I show this image to, to students at the university and say, this is from the 1960s, and Kaplan himself um, was aware of the criticism of these doodles because they are kind of ethnocentric they do support stereotypes and all of this and this wasn't his intention with this but it was trying to get an awareness of the underlying differences and what you can see with the two of them is then that um, occidental rhetoric uh, to a certain extent then um, it has a lot more contextualization involved in it um, you don't get to the point as quickly you provide a lot of context um, for the reader. You don't guide the reader through the argument in the way that you would expect to in English, for example. Um, and so you give the reader a lot of context, a lot of background information. And in some respects, you tentatively take them to the point at which you're trying to, to achieve. So almost like a spiral, you're going around the topic until you get to the point. Um, and I've talked about this with many, many Chinese students here and just say, do you see... Um, this in your in in kind of then Chinese rhetoric, and they often say yes. I mean, of course, that's nineteen sixties, and of course, lots has happened since then in the world, and there's lots of transfer effects of English transferring back onto other languages as well. But that concept is there. It's also related to the idea of reader responsibility. Ah, what does that mean? That's then it's uh, two concepts. It was a colleague of Kaplan's. Um, this was then John Hines, um, who looked at he was comparing languages. This was in the nineteen eighties. Um, and he was comparing English and Japanese. That was the starting point. And he came up with the concepts of reader versus writer responsibility. Um, and when he said that reader responsible cultures, and Chinese is seen to be one of these, um, is where the, the responsibility rests with the reader to take the meaning out of the text. So you can also see this kind of then the spiral, if, spiral logic approach in that the writer isn't forcing their opinion um, or forcing their approach on the reader, the reader is taking the information out of the text. So the reader is doing quite a lot of the work, um, in the sense that they are putting to they're putting the links together, as it were. So the information is more contextualised. And what he then saw with the writer responsible, and which he was alluded to in the nineteen eighties paper, and what has also been substantiated by further research in this, is that English, in all of its different forms. So American, um, South African, British, um, Australian, whatever, tends to be the only writer responsible language in that it's the writer's responsibility um, or the communicator's responsibility to be clear. If the person reading it hasn't understood, it isn't because they haven't exerted enough effort. Um, it's because the writer hasn't been clear enough. And this also links into this linear approach 
in the sense that we write in a lot more guided way. If you think of um, the construct, say, of an essay, if you type this into to the internet, you get two, two different pictures, depending on what levels you're teaching. Um, so you either get a burger approach to this, so the burger approach to writing, where you've got a top bun and a bottom bun, your introduction, conclusion, yes. and quite literally the meat in between. Yeah. Or you have the keyhole approach, where you've kind of got an inverted pyramid where you start with the, the topic at the beginning and you narrow it down as to why I've chosen this topic, how I'm going to approach it, and you look forward to the conclusion. Then you have the, the meat of the argument, as it were, and then you have a pyramid at the, at the end where it goes out, where you look at where you've achieved, you then set this in the wider context and look forward to further research. So we call that the keyhole approach. And this is a lot more linear in its structure even in that. In fact, what I do here sometimes is have a picture of a huge burger with just a skewer through it, because <laughs> to keep it on track so your burger doesn't fall over, you yes. do need that vertical linearity in your argument as well. And so it's these kind of competing things, and you can obviously see that if you come from a Chinese perspective, where you're far more reader-responsible, you're not guiding the reader as much, if you just transpose this argumentational paradigm into English, it can come over as maybe unfocused, um, not very coherent, and not very structured. Whereas that's nothing to do with the language as such, and this is often where academics then say the student has difficulty writing. And it's like, well, it's not the writing that's the problem. It's the way in which it's been argued, and it's the way it's been structured. Um, but in many respects, it's a lot easier to move from the Chinese paradigm to the English one than vice versa. Yes. Because, of course, English native speakers, we wouldn't have then the range of contextual knowledge um, that is assumed in the Chinese structure in order to achieve it. In some respects, we're more like painting by numbers, to a certain right. extent. So there's the kind of the reader-writer responsibility and this cultural aspect that Kaplan was coming in in the different paradigms. And there are two of them, but they do go across different ones. You see a lot of the Western rhetoric is influenced by the Anglo-European pattern, but even, say, the French, for example, they have a very different system of writing an essay or an argumentative essay that differs from the Englishman. And so the, the differences may not be as great, but there are still kind of then linguistic or national paradigms that you just need to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I know from my own experience of teaching international students, not only here in Cambridge, but also um, in my business writing training uh, experience and working with French and Italian people. Mm. And um, one of the... Because as a business writing trainer, I'm often going, say, you need to be clear mm. and concise and spell everything out mm. and not, not assume knowledge. Mm. And one of the slight bits of pushback you occasionally get is, ah, but won't they think that I'm patronising them if I spell mm. everything out? Mm. Uh, is that ever something that you've come across? Yes. And I mean, certainly with the, with the cultures that you were just talking about as well. But I have a very good anecdote about a Chinese student in that area. But certainly with kind of French, Italian, Spanish, so the Romance languages, what you tend to find are things that they um, uh, prefer above other things is a more complex um, structure to the language in the way that English tends to prefer more simplistic structures. Um, and a more aesthetic use of language, you find a lot more use of synonyms in writing than we tend to do in English. You tend to kind of go, it's the author, it's the person born in 1956, it's this person. And you go, is it the same person? Right. In English, we just accept it's the author, whereas they're going, we need to have more, more richness to this. So it's kind of, that's a transfer effect in, in that sense as well. Um, but an example with one of the um, students I had several years ago, and it was on one of our main courses, um, so a Chinese student um, doing Japanese studies um, at a British university with a German supervisor. So very intercultural anyway. Yes. 
And she was having a few problems with her writing, and she came along and we had a chat. And she was doing Japanese history, I believe. Um, and she'd been on one of our courses. She wasn't in my course, but um, I can remember her. And she was exceptionally articulate. Um, so I couldn't see that it was actually going to be a language problem in the way that we can't usually understand the term language. And so um, we had a look at the chapter that she was working on. And it was precisely what we were looking at a moment ago with this kind of spiral logic to a certain extent, or it was very contextualised. I can't remember exactly what she was looking at, but um, I remember reading the, the, uh, the, the chapter and getting lots of information, but not being guided by the writer as to why I was being told this. So there was lots of, I mean, it was well written in that sense. I could understand everything, but I didn't know why I was reading it. And it was only when I got to page eight or nine that then I was told what the point of all this was. So that's this corkscrew thing happening. Very much so. So she got a lot it's of all driving towards this one point yes. that you don't know why you're You don't know why you're reading it. it. And once you've got there, of course, you're now told why you've been reading all of this, but you haven't retained all of that because you weren't given the reason as to why you had to retain this. So then, of course, you had to go back to the start and reread it and go through. Um, and she came along to have a chat about this. And I said, well, I had to read page eight or nine before I knew what was happening. And of course, we kind of got the concept that this is this spiral logic. So we talked through all the, the principles of writer reader responsibility and that it wasn't a linguistic aspect that she was dealing with. It was very much how she'd structured the chapter and how she'd approached it. And that we couldn't work at sentence or paragraph level or even section level. We had to, she had to refocus the entire chapter. I mean, the content was there. We just needed it repackaging in a way that was accessible for a writer responsible culture. And uh, we'd gone through all of these principles and she, she vaguely, she was with me as it were, but she gave me a wonderful quotation and she just said, you want me to write like a five-year-old? And I said, well, yes, in some respects, um, but one who's doing a PhD at Cambridge. <laughs> um, and she went away and I didn't see the, um, the, the second version, um, but I did get an email from her supervisor that just said, I can read it now. Okay. And because the actual, it was purely the focus of the, the way in which she constructed the argument, and all she'd done, and while all the content was there, it just needed to be refocused in a different way so it was more accessible to a to an English-speaking reader. And I can imagine that is quite an uncomfortable process for the student. Mm. I know, you know, as I was saying about my um, training of people mm. from whose first language isn't English, I had a, an Italian um, person on a, on a corporate training course mm. I gave, and he was working in a very international environment, mm. And he came along and, you know, I talked about some of these cultural mm. ideas that, that you've introduced me to. And I, I could almost see the relief on his face that <laughs> this explained mm. why, because he, he was Italian mm. and he'd brought up to use that very synonym heavy, mm -hmm. the, yep. the fancier and flowerier <coughs> your writing mm -hmm. is, the better it is. And that's what they're mm -hmm. told from you know, mm -hmm. primary school. Mm -hmm. And he said, now I realise why everyone's mm. been telling me I can't write. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. not that I can't write, it's no. that I'm writing in a particular cultural yes. way. Yes, yes. And that can be changed a lot more quickly. Yes. With someone who's very proficient in the language, so we're not looking at getting the grammar right and all yeah. of these things. We, this is working at a level um, where the student already has a good knowledge of the language. Although arguably, if you're starting to learn language, you could also be aware of this concept. Yeah. But it does become a lot um, easier when you get to the, the higher levels of proficiency. It is just kind of like refocusing a lens. It's just yeah. a bit out of focus. Yeah. And it's just kind of raising awareness of kind of saying, no, you can write. Mm -hmm. This is just, 
It's like if anybody learning a different type of writing in English, mm. writing an academic essay to, to writing a business report mm. or a, a newspaper article, there are just different paradigms to this. Mm. And this is just one that there's a cultural aspect to this in the sense that different linguistic cultures approach it differently. And I think once you raise awareness of it, and if the student has a good level of proficiency, it's something that can be changed fairly swiftly. And as you say, it is a relief because then it isn't a language problem. Um, and it's something that can be changed a lot more quickly. Is this episode inspiring you to be a better writer? If so, visit my blog, goodcopybadcopy.co.uk, for a wealth of writing tips and to claim your free copy of my ebook, The 200 Writing Tips That'll Get You Writing Like a Pro. And if you're enjoying the show, do remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Your support really means a lot to me because it helps get the show notice. Now, back to the interview. So you've just mentioned that um, English native speakers often, mm. you know, struggle to adapt mm. their writing in an academic context yep. as, as as well. And I've often heard you say that academic writing is no one's first language. And can you explain what you mean by that and why writing, particularly in an academic context, is so hard even for those of us writing in our own language? Mm. Well, I must say that I do use the quote um, very often. Um, but I can't take credit for it. Um, it comes from the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who'd said that um, in one of his um, treaties um, that academic language is no one's, no one's mother tongue. And I think that is very true. Um, and, well, essentially, when working with kind of both first language and second language English postgraduates at the university, um, you do see two distinct differences. So the first one with, with uh, second language speakers, of course, it, it, is a, it is a foreign language, as it were. Um, and so they've got to, to grapple with all of those things that bring into it and also the cultural aspects and all of this. Um, but the strength that the, the international students certainly have over the home students is they know how the language functions yes. a lot more than a first language speaker does. Yes. Um, very few of us are taught our first language in the same way that would be taught a second, third or fourth language. Yes. Um, and admittedly, we have a grammatical awareness and things like this. Um, but not to the same level as if you've had to learn it as a second language. And so what I tend to find, and I tell the students, international students, you have an advantage over home students, um, because I would say very few uh, first language English speakers would have the linguistic competency in a second language to do postgraduate study through that medium. And, and also, also, I think the language to articulate how their own language indeed. works. No, indeed, we very don't, much so. We don't yeah. learn grammar in this no. country anymore. No, no. In fact, you see that when we kind of have the bespoke workshops in the in the year, and you've got second language and first language in the same room, because 60, 65% of graduates at Cambridge are international. Of course, that means anybody who's not British. So you've got the Americans and the Canadians, etc. in that. But a good cohort, it is their second language. Um, and when you say things like, well, can you see where the noun is? Not that yes. we look always at linguistic things, but you're kind of pointing things out. And they're going, what? Okay, noun yes. is a little bit underegging it, perhaps. But, um, no, I it often, is that... if I'm teaching a group of mm. English mm. people, I always have to explain mm. what a noun is, mm. because it's not a given. No, it if isn't. If I'm teaching people whose yeah. first language isn't English, they know. It's like, we they've got it. We, yeah. They've got it. Yeah. 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 So yeah. It's, there is that aspect. And I say for the international students, you do have an advantage. And equally from the bit we were talking about a moment ago with argument, they can work in more than one paradigm, which is they can, not say see the world in different ways, I'm not wishing to support the Safia Wharf hypothesis, but you can actually kind of understand and approach things in different ways, which is 
different if you're only within one one system. Flexibility of thinking. Mm, indeed. Um, but then for the for the um, first language English speakers, um, I mean, first of all, what you see as a trend in in higher education, um, particularly then say say in the UK, is that sections such as my own, so Antis, um, I mean, they're generally called English for academic purposes across across Britain. Um, they do provide a lot of support for international students, so those for whom English is a second language, to assist them. And quite often in universities, it's just a kind of linguistic training as well to raise the proficiency level. But there isn't as much support for first language speakers because it's almost automatically assumed that it's your first language. And so therefore you obviously can do this. Um, and that isn't the case, of course. I mean, none of us are born with the capacity to write an MPhil thesis, for example. Um, we all have to yeah. learn it as well. Um, but that training is somewhat more implicit. We're not given the guidance in all of this. Um, I mean, if you compare, say, the UK to the States, um, they kind of have their freshman composition, which is embedded into all of their undergraduate mm. programmes. I mean, arguably, that's somewhat more prescriptive because they're taught different principles and all of this. Um, and it's certainly something you see also in Scottish universities um, over here in that they have a lot more kind of focus on rhetoric that you can look at um, whereas we don't tend to have it in the rest of the UK No one ever taught me how to write an essay No, neither, you learn it by pro it's kind of trial and error isn't yes, it very much yeah. you kind of write an essay, you get feedback, you see what happens and you yeah. kind of do it like that And you read other stuff and you read other stuff copy it and see where it goes and, yeah. and of course that's something that we can do a lot more at undergraduate level because yeah. students are are getting used to their to, to their discipline and how that discipline communicates and how to write an essay and all of this. But if you're looking at kind of one-year postgrads in particular, they don't have that time to do that. So we've got to be a lot more explicit, and not prescriptively explicit, but certainly to raise awareness of how we do this. And a lot of it then, as you say, with kind of first language English speakers, um, it's assumed that we just know how to do it, and that's not the case. We have to learn to become good writers, because writing at postgraduate level of course, the research is the key aspect of this. You're contributing to your field. But unless you can write or speak about it, nobody's going to know what you're doing. And so you've got to become an effective communicator at the same time. So the principles that kind of work for second language speakers work for first language speakers as well. And in fact, here we, we have um, on occasion had people come and want to join our, our main programmes for international students. And I said, but you are a first language student. Um, not that our programmes are entirely linguistic, but we do touch on those points, obviously. And they go, no, but I, I need training as well. Mm. Um, and certainly you see it in the bespoke workshops, is that they're kind of, because we haven't been taught how to do it, it is very much trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, it's kind of looking for patterns and looking at how things work, like the writer responsible, for example, and pointing this out and saying what impact it is. And they go, oh, yeah, we do that. Or the concepts that always come up in writing guides, coherence and cohesion, uh, always two key ones writing in English. Can you and explain I'm, what you mean by those terms for people who aren't in the field? Or coherence and cohesion, a lot of the academic writing guides, or writing, good writing guides, full stop, because it isn't just purely academic, there are always two terms that are bandied around a lot. Um, and also in second language teaching, it's a, two key things, and it forms the basis of many of the assessments of the big exams. Um, basically, you've kind of got um, coherence is the global coherence of a document, so the overarching how it all hangs together. Does it Does make it fit? sense? Does it make sense? Mm. Is there kind of a nice, strong, linear argument through it and it all hangs together? So that's the global aspect of it. And cohesion is the lower level stuff, at sentence and paragraph level. Um, does one sentence lead on to the next? Does one paragraph lead on to the next? So it's kind of almost like chain links. Sense of flow, very much yeah. so. So if something flows in English, it is kind of that sense of cohesion. 
And it's also another sense of a, of a paradigm of old information before new information. We tend to have kind of structure our sentences um, almost like chain links, mm-hmm. and we follow that principle up. So cohesion is the, is the small level stuff, and coherence is the big level stuff. Um, and really just kind of showing first language students how we achieve that in writing, and basically just giving them different paragraphs where one followed these principles and one doesn't, and just going, which one do you prefer? And this is kind of a feeling very much. Yeah. And we everybody tends to agree with it. This one is, is more clear, as it were. Um, and then going, well, what's happening? It's almost like reverse engineering it mm-hmm. um, for the first language speakers. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a parity in both of them. But certainly, I think, within the context, or with any particular writing context, you, um, just because it's your first language doesn't necessarily mean you can do it. Um, you've got to be trained. Of course, you have an advantage to a certain extent over second language speakers because you've got more of an intuitive knowledge of this. Um, but what the second language speakers have is a more kind of um, understanding of it from its linguistic basis. Yeah. So I think both can help each other. So it is, I think it is um, a foreign language for everyone. Um, and both parties have strengths and weaknesses in that right. as well. Um, one of your other roles here in Cambridge is as a university proctor. Um, which involves you wearing a cassock yes. uh, a lot of the time. Very can, good. can you tell me what uh, being a university proctor involves and if there's any sort of crossover with your work as a writing teacher? There is, there is. I mean, the, the, the proctors, um, it is quite a wide set of stuff that the proctors do. Um, the proctors date back in the university to the 13th century um, and they've had a range of different um, uh, responsibilities over that time. Um, and it is there. There are two strands, if anything, well, say three, but one particular that does relate to 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 my to my my writing job, as it were, and that was one of the reasons for wanting to become a proctor. Um, but to look at the other two, so the proctors are, are ceremonial, so that's where the cassock comes in and other bits and bobs. So when there's a university degree ceremony, the proctors are present, um, and also for university sermons and such matters. So there's a ceremonial side to it. Um, there's also then the proctors then sit on many university committees, um, ex officio or simply to observe. Um, so we sit on university council, for example. Um, we observe there and we also sit on the board of scrutiny. So there's an oversight aspect in that one as well. Um, so they're kind of two key elements of this. But the one that was that the proctors also have um, oversight over or impact on um, is looking if there's unfair means in exams. Now, this, of course, can mean if somebody, when the big suite of exams are on, if someone is caught cheating, either they've taken in some material or they've got their mobile phone on them or things like that, then the proctors can come to investigate. But the key overlap with what's happening here um, is that the proctors also um, look at cases of plagiarism. Um, I always have the problem with the word plagiarism because it looks at the offence as opposed to what you can do. It's kind of, it's kind of, incorrectly referencing as it were yeah and of course plagiarism is quite a wide and often it's term. unintentional and often it is unintentional as well but we look at the crime as it were as opposed to kind of the other side but if a student is um, um, accused of plagiarizing um, material we work then with the departments um, on this in the investigation for it and of course it can be entirely unintentional um, and one of the big strands that the university is looking at and it's recently updated its policy on this as well um, because, of course, plagiarism is, a, is an academic offence. It means you've taken work from others without duly acknowledging that, and that's kind of like academic theft in many respects. Um, and, of course, it can be copy and paste, which is the, the worst of this. It's like, well, of course, we're going to know you've plagiarised this. 
But working out what's common knowledge in your discipline, what isn't, paraphrasing, these things are issues. And certainly paraphrasing, um, which is one of the main ways in which um, we can we can reference without always referencing verbatim, because we don't always want the exact words from the text um, in question, this can be more difficult if it's your second language, yes. because you are quite close. I mean, it's bad enough as it's your first language, trying to work out how to express it in a, not exactly the same way, but... Um, in, in your own words while still providing the reference. And so this can be a little bit trickier. Um, but one of the main kind of issues that has come up is students not really understanding what plagiarism is or why it's important. And I know that there's a whole stream of research as well, particularly, say, looking at the, the East Asian students. And this isn't wanting to tar them with a particular brush at all, but it's that there are different cultural understandings. If we look to, say, the Chinese perspective for a moment, um, they have a more reader-responsible approach and more contextualization. The result will create more reverence for the reader as well, in that you, you're showing your awareness and your standing in education by citing, essentially, the greats without referencing. But you're showing the quality of, of your education and knowledge in the fact that you know it. I mean, I suppose you can, from a similar concept, you can, um, in English, it might be, or not that it's seen as plagiarism anymore, um, but kind of citing kind of well-known phrases that we've got from Shakespeare or the right. Bible. Yeah. It is plagiarism to an extent, um, but certain phrases that we wouldn't kind of go, to take an eye for an eye, we don't kind of necessarily put kind of a biblical reference behind yes. it. Or the green-eyed monster, we don't kind of put Shakespeare yes. behind it. Um, so there's that kind of aspect in it. So they're not always aware. So almost citing mm. in that instance, saying mm. I found this in mm. X book published on mm. so that actually would be undermining your own credibility. Yes, because you're showing it in different ways. Yeah. And not that that's always the issue, but mm. that can certainly be something. And if you haven't been if you haven't been educated through English medium before and, and what's expected within that framework, then of course they can, and very much like with the language thing we're talking about, be transfer effects. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this is always the case, um, but it certainly is an aspect of it. And so one of the reasons for, for, for long-term work with the proctors is that you can get an insight into this and mm. see what the issues are across the university, um, what kind of disciplines do the, the main concerns come from, what may be different through nationalities or language groups, are there any trends that we can look at so we can provide here more tailored support and kind of more awareness raising. I mean, one of the things that, um, off the back of certain things that happened over the past couple of years that the proctors investigated, is ensuring that self-plagiarism is included in the university's kind of guide to plagiarism because people were citing themselves without quoting right citing themselves and it's like but it's mine and it's like well yes it is but you published it so therefore yes. you have to cite yourself yes and so we've had to be explicit in that as well and i think a lot of it is just awareness raising you can't assume that somebody knows exactly um what it is they're meant to be doing if you hadn't made that um clear to them yeah and so it's also working with departments to ensure that they have very good guidelines for the students and not just a tick box i've read the document on plagiarism yes but understanding, because it is, it's a wide range. It goes from verbatim copying to really quite difficult areas where you're mm. going, is this plagiarism, is this mm. not? Um, and we always teach the students really to err on the side of caution mm. and also to talk to their supervisors to be 100% that they're not committing mm. any academic mm. offence. But that's certainly a, um, a, an overlap between the two. And one of the reasons that kind of becoming a proctor was, was important. Yeah, great. Okay, well, it's been delightful chatting to you this morning, Karen. Um, I would like to finish mm. with a quick fire round. Right, okay. Um, no pressure. About, <laughs> under the spotlight, about mm. your own habits and processes as a writer yourself. Mm. Okay, so okay. what, where and how you write. So, okay. what fuels your writing, coffee, tea or something stronger? 
Uh, that depends which part of the writing process I'm in. <laughs> um, generally speaking, I'm a coffee drinker, so okay. that's a key point of that. Okay. Um, I would like to say if you kind of had a successful day writing, then maybe a wee dram at the end. I'm not saying that kind of writing whilst on the influences the way forwards, but certainly caffeine. Okay, great. And when do you like to write? Are you a log or an owl? I don't think I'd fit into that particular dichotomy. I think it depends. I, I can do either of those, depending on what I'm doing. I would say that the part of the day that I, I'm not very good at um, and tend to avoid doing anything is the kind of the afternoon kind of dip from about two to four. Yeah, that that's when it's not slump. Post-lunch slump. Um, so either early in the morning <clears throat> or late in the evening, depending on how other things are working, but not in the afternoon. And are you a planner or a plunger? Do you draft a detailed outline or do you dive right in? I, I'm definitely a planner. Um, I find it difficult to kind of scope out stuff without um, knowing exactly where I'm going. If anything, at that stage... I'd be kind of getting a big piece of A4, some different colour pens, and almost drawing it, trying to see the connections, like mind mapping, but not with kind of computer software, because I like the actual physicality of holding a pen and drawing, and trying to get the bits together, and then to bring that together in kind of an overview of sections and structures and what needs to go in. Pull that all so, into the linear format you've been talking about. Indeed, yes. I'm, I'm very much to type in that one. <laughs> and would you describe your desk as clear or cluttered? Um, when writing, I'd like it to be clear, and but to make sure that I've got all the necessary stuff that I need to refer to on the desk. So it might get cluttered whilst writing, but I do like to end and start the process with everything in their little pile as I know which bit I'm going to need at which stage I'm doing it. Okay. Music or silence? Um, if I'm having to concentrate, then silence. And who's your favourite writer? And that's a good one. Um... I certainly have one who's kind of then just an author who I like to read um, for pleasure, as it were, um, and that's the Scottish crime writer Ian Rankin. Oh, yes. Um, well, I got into his books, my German teacher at school once gave me one of his books, and I just love the way that he creates the image. I mean, I love the fact that it takes place in Edinburgh and places like this, of course, but I think, I think the writing is, you don't feel the writing. It does flow in the way we were looking before, and you really get into the story. So I think from that perspective, him... I wouldn't say I have an academic writer that I kind of really follow um, or feel similarly strong drawn to as, as Ian Rankin, but I would say something I would say in the accessibility side of things and where you can get to the um, the concepts and the ideas um, without any interference from the language um, is Stephen Pinker, so oh, yes. the, yeah. uh, the cognitive psychologist in, in the States, um, mm -hmm. writes very kind of broadly for a, for a non-specific audience, um, but I think the way he explains things so you can get it, you can understand them without necessarily having the linguistic background that, that, that he's aware of. And of course he wrote that great book, A Sense of Style, about Indeed, writing. indeed, very much so, which is also underpinning the writer-reader responsibility, yeah. the fact that we're right-branching, and all of these yeah. things as well. Yeah. Yep. Great. Finally, what's your best writing tip? Oh, best writing tip. Okay. Um, I would say I would have maybe two parts to that. I would say, first of all, um, the best writers I've found um, are the most widely read people. As with anything, we can only do things by imitation to a certain extent. Um, so read as widely as possible, not just within your field or cognate disciplines, um, but across the fields as well. So you can aware what good writing is like and not always just reading, but also reading for content, which is primarily why we do it, but reading to understand how it's written. So becoming more aware of that. And on the other hand, that's what it's an easy guess out one that writing is hard, but we only become better at it by doing lots of it. 
Yes. So write a lot. Write, write, write. Write, yeah. write, write. Well, it's been lovely chatting to you, Likewise. Karen. And I will let you get back to your writing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you for taking the time to, to share your ideas. No, thank today. you. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you could leave a review while you're there, that would really help me get the show noticed. Visit goodcopybadcopy.co.uk for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life. I've been your host, Claire Lynch. Goodbye till the next episode.